Well, I hope you guys are having fun. You guys having fun? Yes? Yes? All right. Wednesday. This is the day. Hump day. Awesome. It is Wednesday, right? A little confused. Hump day. Okay. As we get going, I got a question for you guys, uh, and I want some a little participation. When you were a kid, raise your hand. Let's, do, let's try out raising your hand first. When you were a kid... What did you want to be when you grew up? Anyone want to go? Yeah, right here. Yep. A veterinarian. Why? You liked animals. Oh, that's so nice. Okay, yeah, all the way in the back. A metal scrapper. There we go. That has nothing to do with animals, but that's still pretty cool. Right there, yeah, the glasses. A singer. Why did you want to be a singer? You thought it was epic. All right. That would have been epic. All right, last one right here. Yep. A pretty princess. Because princesses always change their world and they always have a happy ending at the end, right? So that's that's a good that's a good gig. And you know, if you're giving honest answers to those, to that question at least, it oftentimes becomes obvious to us that the reason why we want to do something when we grow up is because we want our lives to matter. It's because we want our lives to make some sort of difference. There's something ingrained inside the human nature that we want to find purpose in our own life, right? I mean, if you're being honest, I've never heard anyone answer that question go, I just... I would just love to stay at home with my parents and mooch off them for the rest of my life. Never get married. Yeah, yeah. They'll never get married if that's the case. <laughs> we want our lives to matter, right? And there's this, uh, maybe you've heard of him, uh, this uh, uh, mythical, he probably didn't exist, Achilles. But there's this story about Achilles when he was about to go join a army to go fight the battle in Troy. Troy was this huge city, and his, and his mother came up to him and said, I had a dream, and I was told in this dream that if you, if you choose not to go to the battle, you will live a long life, but no one will remember your name. Or, if you choose... To go to the battle, you will surely die, but your name will live forever. And so, of course, Achilles took the bait. He went into battle because he wanted, just like all of us want, something inside of us is telling us we want our lives to matter. We want to impact the world in such a way that our lives, we can actually reflect on them and go, okay, I did something. I, I want to do something. And, and everyone has this, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. But we've been looking at the life of Paul, at least we did yesterday. And I kind of I made that statement at the beginning, where we're going. Um, how we want to be transformed people transforming the world, right? If you're a Christian. And so we looked at the life of Paul, and we're going to continue to look at the life of Paul, and just see how much of an 
impact he made. And we're actually going to look at a specific example in Acts 19, verses 32 through 41. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to that. And this story in the Bible is probably, at least in my mind, it's one of the most interesting stories that the Bible has. And I'm just going to read it as it is, and I'll save my comments for afterwards, because I really do think the story itself is so fascinating that it's just you can just read it and you'll be interested in it, right? Okay, so let's do this. Verse 23, chapter 19 of verse Acts. Here we go. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That is Christianity. That's what it was called then. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not actually gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed of her magnificence, whom all of Asia and all of the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theaters, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the the Jews had put forward. And Alexander motioned with his hands, wanting to make his offense to the crowd. But when they realized that he was a Jew, for about, watch this, two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd down, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that this city, that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and is a sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who, have neither, who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius has a, uh, sorry, if Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are the proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, 
he dismissed the assembly. That's a wild story, right? You can picture yourself there. I want you to picture yourself there. Here's this guy named Demetrius, and he is angry, right? He, he makes his job is literally to make these idols of this goddess and sell them to the people. And, and he does not appreciate the fact that Paul's coming in here with this new message that's saying, hey guys, actually, you know these like things that we're making with our hands? They actually can't do anything for us, believe it or not. And they're turning them to Jesus. And so he gets all of his buddies together and he goes, hey guys, we got to put the, we got to put the kibosh on this whole Christianity thing because we are going to lose all of our money. They're, they're taking all of our money away from us right now. And not only that, they're, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to force everyone to stop worshiping our great goddess right here in, in, in our temple. And this temple was a piece of work. I think I got a picture of it. It's not the real picture of it. It was destroyed multiple times, but that is essentially what the temple would have looked like. It was one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. This temple essentially made this city like the ancient Disney world, where everyone would come and see it. There was something to see. It was massive. It was glorious. It was huge. And so you can imagine that if your whole livelihood was based off of making money, selling idols in this thing, you'd be a little upset if someone said you couldn't do it, right? And so he gets all these people, he tells them all this, and then they're just in a frenzy, right? They are just heated. They are so angry. They're like, you can't do this. So they started screaming, great is Artemis. And they started grabbing Paul's two buddies, because apparently they couldn't find Paul at the time. And they drug him into this huge theater. I think I got a picture of that as well. And even this picture doesn't give justice to how big this theater is. It could hold 25,000 people. It is massive. And the whole thing, you can picture yourself there. The whole thing was just filled with angry people who were all screaming the exact same thing. And they all wanted to pull all of these Christians apart. They wanted to just kill these guys. And so the Jews, because the Jews lived in Ephesus as well, they're not Christians, right? They look at Christians and they're like, yikes, I don't want to affiliate myself with them, right? And, and so they, they got one of their guys up there to kind of make and say, hey, guys, we're not, we're not like these weird Christians, okay? We're good, we're good, we're the Jews, we're good with you guys. And as soon as the Ephesians saw that he was a Jewish man, Alexander, their guy that they put forward, they screamed for two straight hours. I mean, don't just run by that. Think about that. Two, you got 25,000 people screaming for two straight hours the exact same thing. That's a little annoying, right? I got four kids. They get pretty angry, right? They could put up a good scream for 20, 30 minutes. I don't know. But two hours? How mad do you have to be? How angry do you have to be to be screaming for two hours? And then finally, a level-headed town clerk came in and he settled the crowd down and basically called them out for their stupidity. He's like, guys, these Christians that you're so angry with, they haven't done anything wrong. They haven't torn down anything. They haven't 
they've even blasphemed our God, and yet you're coming in here trying to kill these guys. You need to knock it off before the Romans come in and take over. And all of these events happen. You can imagine, just picture that event. Imagine being in the city when that happened. All of the commotion. All of these events happened because there was one transformed Christian who led other Christians to Jesus who were also so transformed by the Gospel that they literally changed the entire culture of a city. Wrap your head around that for a second. The entire culture of a city changed because there were Christians in it. And Ephesus was not some podunk town with like a hundred people in it, right? I'm not going to name any names. I know a lot of you guys are from small towns. And I love small towns. Small towns are awesome. But that's not what Ephesus was. Ephesus was one of, they were one of the three largest cities in the Roman Empire at the time, they were essentially the New York City of Asia. They were massive. They were huge. And so, Paul even says in verse 26, or not Paul, but Demetrius even says that Paul led so many people to Jesus in Ephesus and all of Asia, the entire country, the entire place, the region where they were living, so many people had come to Christ in that area. And just to give you a picture of what that looked like, I got another picture for you to look at. That map picture, if you could. What you're looking at right now is modern day Turkey, the orange part in there. That's Asia Minor. That's what this Demetrius is talking about when he says all of Asia has gone after Jesus. So look at that, and obviously you can see it's compared to the United States. You can kind of get a picture of how big it is. But I want you to think about this. Imagine that riot happened in Des Moines. Demetrius essentially is coming up to his friends, and he's not just saying, hey, little grandma, little old grandma Betty down the street trusted Christ, and she's been changed. He's not even saying, hey, the whole block of people that we are living by, they've all been changed. He's not even saying the entire city of Des Moines has been changed. He's saying because of the gospel and how it transforms people, the entire state of Iowa has been so changed that the entire culture looks different because of Christians. Now, I don't know about you. You can take that picture down. I don't know about you. Every single one of us, we all want to make a difference. It's ingrained in every single one of us. But if you're a Christian, and I know there's many Christians in this room, I hope that there is something inside of you when you see that, when you see that the possibility of the power of the gospel and what it can do in your life and in your world, that should motivate you to want to do something crazy. Right? Can I get an amen? It should motivate us to want to do something crazy just to see. We don't know. 
We have no idea what God is willing to do. God could do something great. So here's a question I want us to answer. And it is the question, how can I, how can we turn our world upside down just like we see in our story in Ephesus? Right? That's the obvious question. How can that happen? We want to have that happen. If you're a Christian, you should want that. Let me give you three ways. Okay, Let's dig into this. Let's see how the story itself shows us. Three things must take place if you want to turn your world upside down. And the first one is that you must find your hope in Jesus. You must find your hope in Jesus. I think the notes I gave you is something else. I, it was a screw-up. That one's on me. That's the right point right there. You must find your hope in Jesus. And Josh talked about this a little bit yesterday. The world that you guys are living in, especially in 2021, the world that you're living in is trying to convince you every single day that you can find and live a happy and hope-filled life without God. That you don't need a relationship with God. You don't need, and as a Christian, you don't need to constantly be, be cycling how you think through things with the view of God in mind. You can do that on your own, right? And social media is telling this. Your friends are telling this. Everything you're watching on, on Netflix is telling you this. It's, you can live a happy life. I mean, just, just be a princess, right? I mean, just be a princess. It all works out in the end. You're good. And I'm guessing that many of you have already bought into that. That when you think of what gives your life hope or what gives your life happiness, having a relationship with Jesus is an afterthought, not your first thought. It's not the first thing you think about. But Paul says, this is a hopeless message. If you are just looking to the world, it is a hopeless message. Message. So let me actually show you what he says reflecting back on this riot itself in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this, If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, that's a clear reference right back to the story we just told. He said, If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What Paul is saying is, look guys, if Christianity and Jesus and this whole resurrection thing didn't actually happen, and it's all just a hoax, then what's the point? Where is the hope in life? Where is the hope that the world can offer you if Jesus did not actually rise from the dead, if your hope and your happiness is wrapped up only in this world, then it will fade away just like everything else in this world. I often like to say, we're talking about satisfaction tonight, I often like to say, if you look to fading means for satisfaction, your satisfaction will fade right along with it. Right? I mean, that's the logical thing right there. If what you're looking for in, in this world is to satisfy you, if it's, if it's only in this world, just like everything else in this world, it's going to fade away. And this is what Paul's saying here. He even gives us a, slag, a, a, a pagan slogan. He goes, hey, 
Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, which is essentially the modern-day YOLO, right? Which I think that's probably out of date. I say YOLO, but it's true. You only live once. Do whatever you want. Go for it. You, you got this one life and this one life only. That is a hopeless message. And some of you, as non-Christians, are believing that message. You're thinking, hey, I mean, I guess this is the life I'm looking for and I'm going to find some sort of happiness in here, but it will fade away. And some of you Christians in here are actually giving that message to others, even though you have a hope-filled message. Because that is what Jesus gives us. He gives us a message that can actually give people hope and purpose and meaning, not just in this life, but also in the life to come. You tracking with that? So if you want to turn your world upside down, you must give the world a message that offers real and lasting hope. And that's not found in the world, that's found in Jesus. The second, uh, the second way that we can change the world is that we must, you must be throwing away your idols. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I like to go to the gym. And uh, I, I, uh, one of my biggest pet peeves is when I see an out-of-shape fitness trainer. I don't know if it's just me, but it just, it, I'm looking at this and going, okay, so you want me to pay you to help me not look like what you look like right now, right? And so I'm looking at that going, I just, my instinct is to go, there's something off there, and I don't trust it. But guys, this is exactly how Christians want to change the world. So often, this is exactly how Christians think through this. They go, man, I got all these dreams. I got all these ideas for how I can change the world, yet you look exactly like the world you're trying to change. And the world's just taking one look at you and going, who the heck are you? Why would I want what you have? You look just like me. You have this supposed hope. You look just like me. I'm not buying it. That's how we try and change the world so often as Christians. But the Christians in Ephesus, they realize this is not how they should think. They can't think like this. If they're going to change that city... They can't think like this. Look at verses 18 and 19. They're not ones that we read, but this shows how much they changed. It says, Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and founded that it came up to 50,000 pieces of silver which is roughly $5 million. Imagine that. Throwing away $5 million. Would you be able to do that, right? That's pretty epic. But Paul, the point is here, that Paul taught these new Christians that Christianity, it's not just claiming the name, it is forsaking your old way of life. And Paul would actually remind these, the same church this, when he wrote them his letter in, in Ephesians chapter 4, he goes, guys, you have to put off the old man. You have to put off the old man and put on the new. But it starts with putting off that 
old man. See, this church in Ephesus, they knew that they could not both look like the world and change that same world at the same time. They couldn't do it. And so here's a question for you guys this morning. Do you look like the world you're trying to change? Someone once said, some people will never read the Bible a day in their life, but they will read you. And when they do, will they see Jesus or will they see the world? Some of you in here are truly saved. You really do want to change your world. You really do desire to see your friends and your culture and your teammates come to Christ. But you also have this devil's advocate right here that where you want to, to look like the world. Right? You want the world. You want God and you want the world. And just like Josh said last night, you cannot serve two masters at the same time. You'll never change the world if you look like it. I was, uh, I used to, when I first got saved, I should say, a week before I got saved, I started to date this girl who was a Muslim. And uh, I was truly saved. And I really did love Jesus. And I was starting to become really passionate about Jesus. And I wanted her to know the gospel. Of course, she's Muslim, so it was a little difficult, but... I, I shared the gospel with her. Except at the same time, I was still living a very worldly life. God was changing me in many ways, but I was still, I was still uh, smoking weed, uh, drinking a lot, going out partying. And from her perspective, she's looking at me going, okay, every time you witness to me, you're claiming this life-changing, hope-filled message of the gospel Except from my perspective, there's no difference between me and you. Why in the world would I want to become a Christian when Christianity looks no different than what I believe? She didn't trust me. She looked at that and said, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And it was my life that was portraying that Jesus didn't have a hope-filled message, which he does. I'm going to guess that this is where so many of you guys are at. You do want the world around you to know Jesus. You do desire to tell your friends because you love them, because you're a Christian, and you should. But your lives look so contrary to the message that you're proclaiming that they just don't trust you. They don't buy your message. If you want to make big changes in the world, you must make big changes changes in your life. So what idols do you need to throw away? Think about that this morning. What idols do you need to throw away? What are the things or the people in your life that are causing you to look more like the world and less like Jesus? Is it a relationship? How are you going to tell someone that Jesus is the most fulfilling relationship they can have when you clearly are acting as if your boyfriend or girlfriend is the most fulfilling relationship you can have. Throw away that idol. I'm not saying you have to break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm saying just throw away the idol. Look to Jesus as your greatest relationship. Maybe you do need to throw, break up with your girlfriend. I don't know. You figure that out. Is it your appearance? 
The way you look, your body, your image, your clothes, your style. We talked about this last night. But how are you going to tell someone that God not only accepts, but He also intentionally and purposely caused each and every single one of you to look exactly the way that you look for His wise and holy and good purposes if you're trying to find your acceptance or your... your uh, your acceptance in the way that other people view you, whether that's at school or whether that's on social media, you're giving off a different message than you're proclaiming. Is it your personal achievements, right? Your grades, your sports, your hobbies. Again, how are you going to tell someone that their success and identity is not found in what they can do, but what God has done for them on the cross, if from your life they're clearly seeing that your identity is in the success of what you've accomplished? Throw away that idol. If you want to change the world, you must be throwing away your idols. Uh, there's this. Um, story about this king. Actually, most kings did it in ancient times because they, so if, their, if their empire was too vast, they weren't able to travel around and tell everyone who they were. So what they would do is they'd go over to these other places and they set up these statues of themselves so that everyone would know who's in charge of that region. Well, in the same way, we Christians are supposed to be statues of King Jesus, image bearers of King Jesus here on earth so that the world would know his own message. But the question is, are you relaying the message of Jesus through the way you look? Or when they're looking at your statue in wherever town or city you're at, are they seeing an image of the world? Are they seeing Jesus or are they seeing the world? You can't change the world if you look like it. You want to make big changes? Make big changes in your own life. Throw away your idols. And lastly, you must be trusting the power of the gospel. And this is probably my favorite part right here. When you look at Paul, this dude's nuts, right? If you look at verse 30 and 31, his friends are about to die in that 25,000 stadium, seated stadium over there, and they're, they're trying to kill this guy. And Paul's like, I got to get in there. I got to get in there. I got to share the gospel with them. I got to do something, right? And if you're reading in Acts, and you continue reading in Acts, in, verse, in chapter 21, he's getting beat up in Jerusalem till finally the, the, the guard has to basically pull him away. And he's getting up to the stage, and he's like, hey, hey, I got to say something to these guys. I got to say, this dude is wild, right? I mean, he is crazy. And I think, I think the reason why Paul was able to be so bold and so courageous with his gospel message is because Paul was not trusting in his power. He was trusting in the power of the gospel. Paul thought, man, if I could just get into that theater, if I could just present them with the gospel message, then who knows what would happen? Right? I mean, that's how we want to think. It's even going in and preaching to you guys. I don't know what God's willing to do. He might just save all of you. This was Paul's thought process. If only I can get in front of them, maybe God would save them. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power. 
And that word right there is like dynamite. It is the explosive power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If you're a Christian, do you really believe that the gospel has the power to change your friend, your family, your team, your school, your city? Do you really believe that? God says it's possible. It has the power to do this. Do you believe that? The gospel is amazing. It is supernatural and it is powerful. And you know what else is super comforting? You don't have to be charming. You don't have to be attractive. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room because God loves using stupid, unattractive, ordinary, simple people. And praise God because that is who I am. Right? God uses the non-special people in the world to change the world. God used the speech impediment of Moses to preach to Pharaoh. God used a coward like Gideon to deliver Israel. God used the forgotten youngest son of Jesse to kill Goliath and lead a nation. God used 12 ordinary men and said, I'm giving this message to you. You guys are fishermen. You guys are a bunch of nobodies. In fact, there are so much nobodies that once they started preaching the gospel, the Pharisees are like, who the heck are these guys? They're uneducated, and yet, where are they coming up with all this? They were ordinary. They were simple. In fact, Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So if you're in here today and you've ever had the thought that there is nothing special about you, that you're just ordinary, guess what God says? If you think that about yourself, God Himself says in the Bible, if you're ordinary, you have potential of changing the world. I love using ordinary, simple, uneducated people that know the simple things. Do you love Jesus? Do you love the gospel? Do you look into the eyes of people and go, because of what has been done for me, I am so sinful, so undeserving of God's grace that I can look at someone and go, you got to know this message. You have to know this message. God loves using ordinary people. The question is, will you proclaim the gospel and trust its power? So let me quickly, as we wrap up here in just one minute, give you three action steps. You ready for them? Three action steps. How do we change the world? Look at your life. Look at your one. And look at your world. Look at your life. Look at your one and look at your world. And if you have a pen right now, I want you to jot down two names. Your name and the name of someone that you know that is unsaved. Look at your life 
It starts with you. Have you truly been transformed? Do you know this message of hope yourself? You're not going to heaven without it. Today is the day. God has made you for eternity. He wants you so bad. Would you submit to him? Are you throwing away your idols? Guys, this may be the one that hits home with most of you. You cannot change the world if you look like it. You just can't. The world's going to call you out. They're going to say, that doesn't, that doesn't look right. I don't buy it. Look at yourself. Look at your own life. And then look at your one. And what I mean by that is there's this pastor called J.D. Greer, and he has this philosophy in ministry where he goes, have one person in your mind and in your life that you are constantly, you, are, you will be resolved and committed to be praying and witnessing to them. Always have that one person in mind. Always. Lord willing, it'll be more than one, right? But at least one. Have that one person in mind. Write it down. Pray for them. And game plan. How can I share the truth of the gospel with them? And then finally, look at your world. Believe big and pray big. The gospel is a powerful thing. It is the power of God. So start to dream. Think about your cities. Think about your schools. Think about your teams and go, I know that I have a God that can change them. I want to pray and I want to believe that God will do just that. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you are a powerful God. We know that you are a God who has given for whatever reason, you've given this message of reconciliation to us. Lord, we're sinful. We are so sinful. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would come to know you first. And then if they do know you, that they would just catch, catch a glimpse of being a part of something much bigger than themselves. Catch a glimpse of seeing the glorious team that you've put us on and how we can go out and share this message of reconciliation and the gospel to the world. And if you'd be willing, you could change the world through these kids. We love you. In your son's name, amen.